Hello, this is Orion Taraban, and this is PsychX, Better Living Through Psychology. And I'm very excited to have on the podcast today, Mr. Ken Curry. Ken has been a personal friend of mine for several years. He is, like me, a therapist who specializes in men's mental health. He's based out of the state of Colorado. And uh, we got in touch with each other several years ago when I was trying to build a directory of therapists who specialized in men's mental health and because there are few and far between. I don't know if there's anyone else in the state of California that I'm personally aware of who does mm. what I do. And I was interested in finding a professional network because I was getting interest from men all over the country who wanted to work with me. Um, but unfortunately, due to licensing restrictions, I couldn't do psychotherapy with people who lived outside of the state. So I was trying to find other folks that I could refer these interested men to, as well as just build a professional network, um, you know, just to swap stories and and uh, professional and personal support. And and Ken's been great with respect to that. He's He's been a good friend. And uh, I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today, Ken. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Orion. Much appreciated. Thanks for the invitation, for sure. Of course. Well, um, I think it might be since I began the conversation by talking about our work in the context of men's mm -hmm. mental health, I think you have a, is it right to call a program? It's called the solid man. And you've written a number of books and you, mm -hmm. you guide men through it like a process. Is that, mm -hmm. is that what you say? Would yeah, you talk that's a, about this? Sure. Sure. Let me say a couple things about um, my, Let's see, my license in Colorado is LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And I really took that and uh, started working with men years ago. Uh, it became something that was a passion of mine, mostly because of my own internal work and the things that I was working on for myself. And so as I started to develop uh, my groups for men, I started to develop a curriculum to help guys walk through life and really building um, a really solid sense of self, uh, identity, strength, um, confidence, um, really helping men to have a much more um, significant presence in their life. Um, and so that was some, what I started building was the my curriculum to develop and help men to become, um, I call it, I, I empower men. And some people don't like the idea of empowering men, but that's what I do. And so the solid man process definitely is designed to help men move from point A to point B, from a point where I'm not really strong. I don't really know who I am. I don't really have a lot of confidence. I might be embroiled in a number of different um, uh, addictions, maybe porn, uh, alcohol, other things that, that guys just get stuck in. And so really helping men kind of build a life that is strong. Um, and really building their relationships. So so that's what I've developed. And um, let's see, I have my website is called solidman.com. And um, and yeah, you're right. I have a few books. Um, that we'll make sure actually, we get the pitch in a little bit later in the episode. Yeah. But uh, okay. what, what I yeah. heard right now is that you your system sort of evolved organically over the years of working with hundreds or, or thousands of guys. And you kind of codified it into um, a system to guide people from feeling lost or unsure of themselves to having a strong sense of self purpose and confidence. Mm -hmm. Is that a good summary there? Yeah, that's a great summary. Yep. And you've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Over a decade, about 15 years. All right. Now that's interesting. Have you noticed that 
the presentation of the men that you've worked with has changed over that time? And if so, what do you think might be some of the 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 most prevalent issues facing men today? That's a okay. That's a really good question. So the um, let's see. One of the most profound uh, guys that I've been working with is Dr. Robert Glover and his No More Mister Nice Guy work. And so he really outlines what I think is a really significant part of the problem. And that is the whole idea of a man being nice. And so it's really interesting. His book is like 20 years old and it's only getting more steam. So it's like you, you see the, the problem of men being nice guys. Um, and it feels like that it's been something that's been culturally programmed into men to be more submissive, to be more um, wanting to make their women happy. You know, the whole happy wife, happy life thing that that's kind of been the thing that has been told men. If you do these things and um, then life is going to be good for you, it's going to work. And the problem is that most guys have been finding out that that is not the case. It is like the opposite um, where it's like it creates more problems than they could ever imagine being this nice, submissive man. And and making other people happy, being a pleaser or an appeaser, living for approval, that type of thing. And so that's been a I, what I've been seeing as a really significant problem. Um, for me, I kind of take Glover's stuff a little bit further, and I define it as the problem is is the externally referenced life that a man living in uh, externally where I live to please, I want people to be happy with me. I live to uh, what everybody else's expectations are. And when I live like that, I'm living always thinking about what does everybody else think? What does everybody else want? And, and I'm living to make those things happen and uh, to get the validation that I need instead of what I think is uh, where I take guys is building an internally referenced life where I'm, I'm living to please myself. I'm living to make me happy, which initially for most guys sounds really horribly selfish. And it's a really tough thing to get over, to be able to think about, you know, oh my gosh, that's selfish. I'm living to please myself because it's the opposite of what I've been conditioned to do sure. to make everybody else happy. And so that's been a really, really big shift. Um, I help guys to make that shift. And when you become more internally referenced, you're finding out who you really are find out what's valuable to you. What are your values? Where does your value and self-worth actually come from as an individual, as a person? And really being able to identify what are my internal resources telling me about how to move through life. And those internal resources like my body, my intuition, my mind, um, the things I see as, as wise, what's important to me, what are my values, my emotions, which really tell you what, what I want and need in life. And all the stuff inside of me guiding me, and it, it actually creates a really, really significant life when you start to live from an internal place rather than external. Does that all make sense? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I, I read Glover's book a while ago, and I think it's a, an excellent text for a lot of guys to read because from my experience, it put something that I was sort of dimly or partially aware of into a very concrete and explicit, you know, framework that was mm -hmm. easy to understand. It just sort of sharpened a lot of things I kind of knew into a starker focus. Yeah. Um, 
so I could see them better. And I think that the nice guy syndrome, as I understand it, is summarized by like the covert contract, which is that I can earn love and respect Mm -hmm. sex and relationship, but I do it indirectly by performing acts of service that may not even be wanted or required for us in the hopes that I could potentially further down the road, get what I want um, Mm -hmm. or indirectly. And uh, yeah, I think that it's important for guys to be able to be selfish, to say, this is who I am and this is what I want. In the beginning, it is extremely difficult for them to do that. And I do think that in the beginning, that selfishness can take a more, let's say, childish or hedonistic tone where it's like, you know, I feel like having a steak. I'm just going to have a steak where I feel like playing video games. I'm just going to do it. I, I'm, I, it's almost like a, a regression back to the last time when they were assertive about their mm-hmm. wants, which is generally children. Generally, are, children are very assertive about what they want and what they don't want. Mm-hmm. But what I found is that most people can't stay at that level for very long. Mm-hmm. Like if there's only so many beers you can drink, there's only so many video games that you can play. And then you you start to think, well, selfishly, I want to do something more meaningful or I want to challenge myself. And I think in the process of that, you create greater value for yourself and, and your life. And then you get to a point where, well, selfishly, I want to share this with other people because my joy will be increased if I can share my goodness with other people. And mm-hmm. then you can invite people into your life who want to be there, as opposed to trying to drag them in. You can kind of just mm-hmm. say, this is who I am. This is what, I, what I'm all about. Would you like to join me? And then you can be surrounded by women and friends and colleagues and things like that. And But that's still kind of with, on some level from a place of selfishness. It's that I've decided that out of for my own pleasure, I'm going to give as opposed to mm-hmm. I'm giving from in the hopes that I can barter for something that I don't yet have. Does that make sense? No, you say in the barter that you don't yet have, that would be the covert contract. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yet have that sense of love or respect in my life. So I'm going to trade it for money, attention, service. Mm-hmm. But when I feel like I have abundance in my life. I don't really have to trade abundance for more abundance. You know, I can, I can just right, give right. it because it's my pleasure to do so. Yeah. I think the, um, the initial thing you're talking about the childish, um, selfishness really, I think initially it comes out where you're now testing your ability to say, what do I want? Cause most guys, because they've been so externally referenced, they don't know what they want. They have never exercised that muscle. What do I really want? And that's what it comes down to. What do I really want? Because initially they might pursue some things. Okay, now I have permission to pursue what I want. Mm -hmm. And they're pursuing things that aren't necessarily the most healthiest things. And so I'll get, I'll, uh, I want to play video games or I want to do this, you know, and you start exercising it, but you're pursuing things that aren't necessarily the, the, like I said, the healthiest things, they might be counterfeits. Sure. What, what really is going to bring that, that um, level of uh, purpose or fulfillment. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, the way that I think about that is that we're always in a process of becoming, Mm -hmm. we don't ever really know who we are right now. We know who we have been in the past. And unless we check in with ourselves on a regular basis, the gap between who we are now and who we who we think we are mm-hmm. might be years or even decades. And if somebody has spent his most of his adult life um, chasing external validation, the last time he might have 
been sure of what he wanted was childhood. And mm -hmm. so he's running like an outdated OS and he goes back to the sources of pleasure and satisfaction when he was last most certain of them. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting is they probably don't provide the joy and satisfaction that they once did. And then the man can sometimes feel like he's depressed, that he's lost, that even the things that once provided him joy no longer do so. But that could be appropriate. The things that bring us joy and satisfaction mm -hmm. when we're 12 shouldn't be the things that bring us joy and satisfaction mm -hmm. when we're 22, let alone 42. So sometimes um, if it's been a while because of the busyness of life or because of one's attitudes towards others, I think it's important to enter into a period of like open-minded experimentation where you go out into the life, go out into life and say, well, I actually don't know what I like. I actually don't know what mm -hmm. I want. Let's try things and not have any contempt prior to investigation so that I can see how these different experiences actually feel for me, how they resonate. And I can learn from that emotional response, who I am now, what I like mm -hmm. now, what I want now. A lot of the guys that I work with, when we start working, they don't know what they want, but generally people know what they don't want. It's it's generally mm -hmm. easier to know what you don't want. So if you don't yet know what you want, um, listeners, it's sometimes better to start with what you don't and walk in the opposite <laughs> direction for a while. Um, yeah, most... I, I definitely like what you're saying. Orion, you're bringing up the two, two big questions. And in family therapy, it's the uh, differentiation questions. And differentiation being the fancy word for being able to be my own self in my own life or in a relationship where I don't lose my sense of self or I'm not, I'm my, my person is not absorbed or lost in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's the differentiation. And the, the, the questions are, who am I? What do I want? And most guys, they don't know the answer to those two questions, like we're saying. And so being able to ask who am I and what do I want? Like you said, it's a journey. I'm going to find out who I am, what I want. And that puts me in a position once I start even asking those questions where I can like be, I can start to actually become myself finally in my own life because I have, I have allowed myself to be absorbed or lost in the relationship. And that is a really powerful thing just to be able to start asking those two questions. And because the who am I question, the identity question, who am I, what's my character, what's my value, what's my worth? Most people are just drenched in shame, shame being that thing that says something's wrong with me or I'm defective, I'm not good enough. And when you start to develop that where I am okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay, then I can start to trust what's going on inside of me and trust my um, the things that I want. And I love what you're saying because it is a process of learning. What is it that I really want? And as I started, you kind of pro you kind of outlined that where finally I'm starting to I want people in my life to thrive. I want my family to be loved. I want you know those things are things that I want that are incredible for everybody who's involved. And that, that's what I find with most guys, you know, we, we hear all the, the toxic masculinity stuff and everything that, that if a man was empowered, he would be oppressive. And that narrative is just so wrong and so off base because every guy I run into, when they start to actually be themselves and live according to what they want, they're actually wanting everybody else in their life, their family, 
their wives, their girlfriends, their friends, everybody to thrive. I want everybody to be doing well. I think that's very common. And maybe what we can uh, postulate here is that the the more, let's say, elevated the self, the more that selfishness includes the well-being of those around him. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. It's like if I were living with a woman, I would want her um, to be doing really well because I would have to be in her space a lot of the time. So <laughs> even if it was just out of a selfish desire for peace and harmony, I would want her to be thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more uh, abundant and the more secure I am in my sense of self, the more that I can see that I'm a part of a, an expanding web of relationships that stretch mm-hmm. out into my family, into my coworkers, into my community, and potentially even to humanity as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And selfishly, I mean, no man is an island, right? So the highest, uh, the highest perfection of self requires the elevation of actually the rest of humanity in order mm-hmm. to be um, perfected and sustained. So I think that's the that's like selfishness at its highest level, and not right. not everybody is there yet, and that's totally fine. We're, maybe we're all stumbling in that direction. No, but it's so interesting. It's so interesting that everybody, pretty much across the board, when they hear the word selfish, it's like it's it's a totally negative connotation. I can't be selfish. So I kind of I'll I'll joke and use the word selfness. Okay, if selfish isn't right, if, let's go selfness. You know, but the but it's the the idea that what you're talking about is there is something about a a, a noble aspect of selfishness, and that sure. that sounds unheard of. That's not something people talk about. I, I I'm a big fan of selfishness, especially in relationships. One of the things I counsel men to do is is to find someone with compatible selfishnesses because the alternative (laughs) is like a lifetime of compromise, which is often two people not getting what they want Mm -hmm. and often keeping score of like goods forwent or debts incurred. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if I'm the kind of guy who needs a lot of space for my own kind of peace of mind or well-being, then it kind of makes sense for me to find somebody who also needs somebody who is more independent mm-hmm. because that selfishly works for her. And so we have compatible selfishnesses. You see? Mm-hmm. I do. And, sure. and the other category that I, that I, that I enjoy selfishness or I coach guys to engage in selfishness is the category that I said earlier that usually um, most men, and this isn't men, women do it as well the whole idea of losing myself being absorbed into the relationship and and having a sense of self and selfishness actually is me being me in the relationship it it's, feels like the most absurd statement that i have it, when i when i ask guys i tell guys you need to be you in your own in your own life mm-hmm. and it's like um, because they haven't been themselves in their own life. I am somebody who I'm supposed to be, or I'm playing a role that other people want you to be rather than being myself or who I am at my core and moving forward into my life with my own identity and with what I want and need in my life. So, yeah. 
Well, we talked, what, what was the word you used from family therapy? It was uh, di differentiation. Differentiation. Okay. So this is something that seems to be a pretty ubiquitous issue, especially in long-term relationships or mm -hmm. marriage. It used to be that a man's house was his castle. Mm -hmm. Now at best, it seems like he has a man cave or a garage and the house has been sort of taken over by the women. Uh, the decorations are all what the women mm -hmm. Uh, decide throw um, pillows everywhere sure and we've heard the phrase like betatization by 10,000 concessions uh it didn't seem to be this way you know two generations ago i wasn't there but it doesn't seem that way from looking at my grandparents lives and the media from that time men would just say up oh, i'm going out for war or i'm a traveling salesman i'll be back in 6 months um they certainly didn't seem to feel like there were the, the doilies everywhere um, in the house. What What's going on? Like, is it, because I also made this video recently about how feminine love is different from masculine love and and kind of a, a woman in love, it, it's more consumptive. Like if it, if it could, it would want all of your love and all of your mm -hmm. attention and know all of your thoughts. And, and how do you, um, how do you have that differentiation over, 40 years when there's this like maybe a relentless force, like a tide that's just sort of slowly mm -hmm. always kind of wanting a little bit more. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. You use the word consumptive. I'll use the word absorptive, that okay. it's absorption. Um, that's the the concept that I use. It's the same exact thing where, where I'm being consumed. I'm being absorbed into her world. And the whole thing of the the house being, um, it's so interesting that you're saying this, Orion, because I, you know, that I recently done, have done a uh, massive, my front room kitchen area remodel, right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing of how how we've gone through the process of being able to pick and choose what we're doing and and all this and how how some things I've had a voice, some things I've been like, no, you just choose what you what you want. Um, and so it's been, but I, I'm really, really happy with our front room and our kitchen area and everything. I'm way happy with how it is because it's mine because mostly I built it. Um, I didn't build the cabinets, but I put them in and put the flooring in. It did all the, did everything. Um, not everything, almost pretty much all, but the whole thing of what you're talking about more than the decorations is do I lose myself? And in a way, and, and we, uh, you know, a lot of the conversation is the whole idea of the of frame, my frame as a man. And when I walk into my house, do I lose my frame? Do I turn into a little submissive boy and mom can tell me everything about what's going on in the house? And there's a lot of guys that have that uh, as a component that at work, they have frame, they, they hire and fire and they build things and they do things. But when they get home, they have a completely different posture. That's certainly true. Some guys can be very submissive relative to their women in, in the most of the relationships that I personally see, the woman is the more powerful party in the relationship. Um, but I also see, I mean, what do you think about the idea of more egalitarian relationships? Can a man maintain frame within that kind of belief structure or and is that sort of a slippery slope down towards concessions? Help me. Um, tell me what you believe the egalitarian to be. Sure. I, I think that 
the egalitarian model of relationships is that we're partners and we're we're making like we have equal decision making power we share the child care we share the chores we uh, split the bills and um no one person is the boss of the other person no one person has more power than the other and is it possible to maintain frame in that situation that's a great question um i'm i'm just thinking about the the um my answer i'm Gosh, this is really hard because I don't have a problem with each person having a lot of power in the relationship. Um, I think being a power couple is actually what you want to seek, where both people are really significantly strong individuals, where they're standing on their own two feet, where they're they're um, developing their own purposes, um, where they're creating a relationship where everybody in the relationship is empowered. Um, the whole idea of power couple is something that my wife and I have been seeking. And, and so, um, so being able to make sure everybody's powerful, but that doesn't necessarily fit the egalitarian model. Um, because when it comes down to it, um, gosh, this is, this is really hard for me because I don't know why it's really tough for me right now, even talking about it, because it's like what I have going on, I have a really strong frame. I know who I am. I know what I want. And I have a really strong presence in my relationship. But that strong presence that I've had in the relationship has also empowered my wife to be really strong as well. And for her to be able to develop her career, she's developed since the kids have been out of the house, since we're empty nests, she has created a really, really significant career. It's been awesome to see. And so I, that, but when it comes to your question, I'm trying to think of what is it that, that you're asking? Okay. Let me try again. Well, I, mean, yeah. I think you brought up a, an interesting point, which is that power isn't necessarily a zero sum game. It's not. That you just because one person is more powerful doesn't mean the other person is necessarily weakened and mm -hmm. that both a, a man and a woman in a relationship can be powerful in that relationship. Mm -hmm. The egalitarian model is, um, I think, based on, it's not, hmm, how do I put it? How do I experience it? There, can, I, can I jump in, Orion, on sure, that? Because I think when you said zero sum, I think that's the, that's the game. Because the zero sum is, is that one, we'll see, plus one minus one equals zero. And so what it is, is the plus one is the person with the power, the minus one is the person without the power, and it's the zero sum, right? And so I think that's the game that most egalitarians play. The whole idea of one person has the power, the other doesn't, even though you said the whole thing of, you know, we're both equal in this. But I think when it really comes down to it, most people in that world play a zero sum power game where they're it's like they're all fighting for 50 percent and am i going to get 51 or am i at 49 and what i'm describing is what i call abundant power where it's not a zero sum there's not 50 percent that you're fighting over there's massive amounts of power that everybody has at their disposal and so as a man i am a powerful man and that's why i want to empower men but it's not to have power over anybody it's i want my power for, I want power, like I was saying, 
I've empowered my wife. My power as a man has empowered her to become the strongest person that she can become. And her becoming powerful doesn't diminish my power at all. As a matter of fact, it empowers me even more to be able to do this. So both of our, the power couple, there's no zero sum. It's like we're both becoming more powerful and more powerful as the years go by. Does that all make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I do think a lot of the tendencies towards egalitarianism in relationships grow out of a discomfort with power. And the idea here is that if it's perfectly matched 50-50, we can sort of eliminate the influence of power in our relationships because the idea of power and uh, makes me uncomfortable. So I'd rather balance it out so that we can pretend that it doesn't exist. But as we've just been describing, I don't, we, it sounds like we agree that power isn't necessarily a zero sum game. Mm -mm. Another dimension of egalitarian relationships that I see is like the need to discuss everything. It's like um, there, there's less of a, no, we're gonna, we're gonna put this flooring in on the kitchen. Or even <laughs> I'm going to take Tuesday off to go fishing. It's more like, what do you, let's talk about the floors. Let's talk about the Tuesday night. What are we going to do for dinner? And it's always arriving at a consensus. I think that's a, also another feature of a lot of egalitarian models is that we, we do everything together and we make decisions jointly in as many different domains as possible. And is that like a seeding of frame to behave in that way? Such a great question. So I think the category of, like you were saying, I'm going to go fishing on Tuesday. I'm not going to ask permission, but since I'm in a relationship, I might ask, you know, does that, does that, uh, did we have anything else planned on Tuesday? You know, or was there something else? I might ask, is there something going on? Because there's three entities here that we're talking about. There's me, my wife, and the relationship, the marriage. It's a, it's an entity. We've created something, a being that actually exists. And it's something that we take care of and that we grow and that we develop. And so, so some things are all about me. I'm going to go fishing on Tuesday. Some things are all about her. She's going to go do this and that and do whatever she needs to do. But then there are a significant amount of things that we do as a couple. And, and that when you, when you're, you're kind of bringing up the whole idea of conceding and the answer is yes, there are some times when I would concede what I want or when I want it to be able to do something as a couple. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question. I think, I think so. I think you're saying that, yeah, sometimes it's, uh, well, to enter into that mutual deliberation is a seating of frame. But what's mm -hmm. more, it sounds like you're saying that sometimes that is appropriate to do. Yeah, it is. So so the seating of frame would be, or let's say making a per personal sacrifice. I'm making a personal sacrifice to not go fishing on Tuesday because we had something else planned or there, there was um, who knows what else... I'm, I have nothing's coming to mind of what it well, might What if be. it's not something else planned, but she just doesn't want you to go? She thought maybe, you know, she's going to be sad being all alone or that uh, she'd rather just cuddle on the couch with you. Oh, well, that that I would not submit to. Because she'll get enough cuddling 
And the, the thing is, most most people, most women understand if they have that thing or they feel like, oh, my gosh, he's not spending time with me. Most women will 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 they'll say if my husband goes out and spends a day fishing, he comes back a much more energized, loving individual. Hmm. He, he's coming back more um, yeah, energized or or his tank is now full. Because uh, if he stayed home and just watched some chick flick or The Bachelor on TV while he's snuggling on the couch, he's losing his soul. His soul is shriveling and just dying. But if he's out fishing or doing something he loves to do, he's going to come back a much more energetic man. And that's what she wants. I want you to be present with me. And so that's not something you can concede. And so to be present, women might need to appreciate that men need to be absent for a while. Absolutely. And this is this, the, you know, Esther Perel's thing. That's the, she's saying in order for passion to happen, you need space. The whole, she uses the, the fire triangle illustration that if you smother all the boards together and try to build, try to build a fire, there's no fire. But if you put it a TP and it has space in it and has all the space for the air to flow through, it grows a beautiful fire. And, and do so, you think it's you know, primarily the man's responsibility to maintain that space in the relationship, especially in light of what we are describing as women's tendency towards absorptive or consumptive love? I think so. Um, it all depends. Um, my wife does a great job with, with her own time, with me being off, because we have really good times when we're together. But the thing is, I think to the point that we're making, because we have a significant amount of space where we're doing our own thing, that that we have, um, that the times when we are together are really quality times. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, but you're kind of talking about the um, potentially the the woman's gatekeeper of the relationship, the man's kind of the gatekeeper of the space or something like that. Maybe. And I, 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 so that's I what feel like. It's it's always fallen to me to maintain that space. And what it seems to me is that the longer I'm in a relationship, the more the woman wants to get closer and closer and, and decrease the intervals in that absence and to, um, you know, join more and more together. And that's the tendency in the woman. And I have to kind of... Yeah consciously and intentionally put the brakes on, create some space and, and distance. I'm a huge fan of less frequent, but higher quality interactions. And I had that yeah. conversation recently. Um, I think that is preferable for me to have that kind of low quality, constant togetherness that isn't, that's just sort of like existing in the same room. Mm -hmm. A long time ago, I cohabitated with a woman and after six months, I felt like I was furniture to her. Like she would just walk right past me without looking at me. And she'd be sitting next to me on her phone. And I just felt schmucky in that situation, to be mm. honest. So I prefer when I'm with somebody to give them my full undivided attention. I kind of expect that from them as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and if we can't do that for whatever reason, because we're not interested or we're preoccupied or we're busy to just table that until such times when that is possible. Um, but the, the pushback from that is generally like, well, I kind of like the coziness. I like being around, even if we're not interacting, even if it's not that level of relating, 
I still like to be around. I still like to be with you. I've seen mm-hmm. that more from the women in my life. Does that make sense, Ken? It does. It totally makes sense. Um, it. I'm just not sure. There there may be reasons why that is. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, but the kind of one of the ca- concepts that I that I um, that I think is really at play here. Um, we hear a ton about attachment theory. Sure. And attachment theory, I think, has really come from a more of a feminine side of therapy, where it comes from mothers and their children, literally. Pretty much, right? That's that's the research that, that that's the is based on. Right, right. And so what we're talking about, and I think we could probably go forward with writing a whole book and a whole nother theory, and from a masculine side of it, is detachment theory. <laughs> right? Tell me more about this. Right. But that's what we're talking about, Orion. How do I walk through life? As a as a man who stands on his own two feet, this is something that I've said from the beginning of our conversation. The whole idea of being uh, an empowered man who knows who he is and knows what he wants. And I'm standing on my own two feet. I don't need you in my life. Now, see, the whole thing of the, the you complete me BS and chick flicks and all that, it's all romantic and everything. And it sounds good, but it's ridiculous relationship concepts. Mm-hmm. Where if I need you in my life to complete me and make me feel better about myself, then the relationship is going to falter horribly. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing of if I am detached from you and I am a whole and complete human being where I'm okay by myself, the whole differentiation differentiation piece, I'm okay by myself. I don't need you. Now I can actually say I want you in my life. And I invite you into my life, not as something to fill the void in my identity or make me feel whole and complete, but I'm inviting you you in my life as somebody who is a complement to my life or somebody who is a partner in my life. Mm-hmm. But I'm not inviting you in to resolve my internal conflicts. Oh, certainly. I, and, I love the detachment theory idea because I'm thinking about all the philosophies throughout my life that have really resonated with me, like um, mystic Christianity to be in the world, but not of the world Mm -hmm. or Buddhism, the path of renunciation or stoicism where you're practicing indifference towards externals. And it seems like that from many different sources of wisdom is the path that has been prescribed for human beings to walk in order to achieve liberation from suffering and to arrive at the highest forms of existence on this Mm -hmm. planet is detachment. Not attachment, but detachment. Isn't that interesting? It's very fascinating. I I don't think I'd made that connection. I love detachment theory. Hopefully you can elaborate that. Well, Um, think about about it with relationship. So if I, back to the absorbed consumptive, if I allow myself to be absorbed into the relationship, and trust me, this is what most men do who have a really problem with a strong problem with relationship. I'm absorbing myself. I'm allowing myself to be lost in the relationship because you are the one that's going to make me feel better. You're going to give me that external validation. So I'm going to lose my identity, lose my wants and needs, and I'm going to pursue you to be able to grant on me or confer onto me my value and worth. That's what's called a reflected sense of self. And so that's what we usually do. That is a really, I mean, that's, that's a really unhealthy attachment, but it's seeking the attachment for being able to resolve, like I said, my internal conflicts of not feeling good about myself or not being feeling whole or complete. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of being detached and 
a separate human being standing on my own two feet is actually a powerful relational construct. It's huge. It's really, really big because then that allows me now to have a really healthy relationship. Okay. So let's take a slightly different tack because I'm I'm okay. to this conversation through the, yeah, I can through the see lens your of head. some of my yeah, I can see it working in there. Some of my audience. So yep. um, we talked a little bit ago about um some of the modern challenges that you see facing men. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the nice guy syndrome and this idea to to people please women to to forego our own values or needs in the indirect expectation of getting sex or relationship. Um, I think that definitely exists. What I'm seeing more and more of in recent years, especially online is I'm not even going to go to a relationship. Uh, It's more like the black pill stuff, which is what's the point you've talked a lot about bringing women in to create this sort of relationship Mm-hmm. You told me right before this conversation, you recently celebrated your 39th wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I think a lot of guys are going to, some guys are going to hear this and think, yeah, that sounds good, Ken, but the risks are really high associated with that. They certainly, while there might be some benefits, they don't seem to outweigh the costs or the liabilities of that kind of relationship. Um. And it just doesn't seem worth it because I might be able to get those things elsewhere at lower cost and for less risk. Do you have any response to something like that? I totally agree. (laughs) Our day day and age, man, I'm telling you, like the whole thing of like, you know, what 75% of divorces are um, initiated by women. Every single week I am, I personally am wrestling with processing things with guys who are going through the, a really, really horrible court system that we have. It it is wretched. It is so distorted that I, it pisses me off every week, just how horribly men are treated in our court system. So the answer is yes, it is high risk. It is horror. And yes. I, I, so here I am. I, I love the idea of marriage. I think marriage, I've, I've given my life to it, my studies to it, um, everything. I, I think it's an amazing thing, but I totally agree with the guys that feel like this is a high, too high of a risk. It well, is a really significant risk. Oh, absolutely. Because like you said, the majority of divorce initiated by women, if there's children involved, they, the family courts almost always favor the women men can be financially castrated. Oh, it's horrible. A divorce. Um, oftentimes men have spent the last 20 years of their lives spending half of their waking lives working their jobs and the other half of their waking lives attending to their wife and children. So any friends have long since fallen by the wayside. If they do have any kind of social activity, it's generally through the woman who orchestrates that. So when that falls apart, the man is often left feeling alone and isolated because he hasn't been attending to his own personal relationships and male friendships. And that's also what causes really uh, negative outcomes for men in the wake of divorce. But we're also talking about, so all that is true. Yes. So, but here's, here's the other thing, which is the statistics look bad, but you don't, Mm -hmm get involved. You don't marry a statistic. Um, any given woman on a long enough time frame actually has a zero or 100% chance that it will end in a divorce. 
it's just like in the aggregate, the population level that we say it's like, you know, 55% of marriages will end in divorce or something like that. It's, it's not just the, um, it's not just the risks on the statistical level for me. It's more like I've yet to see a relationship. I've yet to see a marriage, especially looking at the man in that marriage where I think, wow, I want what he's having. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. His life is better than my life. He gets to do things that I don't get to do. His happiness is greater than mine. And I think that is in conjunction with the known risks is part of like, well, what's kind of, what's the point here? You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. I'm just missing something. And because relationships feel very different on the inside than looking at them from the outside for sure. So let's, yeah, let's, because the question you posted was more, um, and what the way I answered, agreeing with you, yes, it's a high risk, right? But think about how many people do get married. And um, I think the, the, the amount of marriages that end in divorce, if you don't count the second and third and fourth divorces, it, it's like 44%. It's lower. Something, mm-hmm. something like that. Right? That's still pretty high. Though. It is. It is. It's way high. But then if you think about it, then if it's 44, that means 56% die or end in death. Right. And so <laughs> and, and that and one more thing to interject here, which is that just just because 56 percent of first marriages don't end divorce doesn't mean that they're happy, successful, thriving Dude, relationships okay. either. So that that's really the question that you're asking. Yeah. Right. So if you do find yourself or you do choose to be married, how do you do this well? Mm. And that and that's kind of goes back to our question of the detachment or the whole idea of frame. And for a man to be able to build frame, frame is that idea, like we were saying, the most powerful part of your frame, you think about it, frame like a frame of a house. You got the foundation that's built on the rocks, and then on top of the foundation, you got your base plate and your your studs and the top plate, and you got your, your headers, and you got your joists, and you got the whole all the wood and stuff that goes into the house that creates a frame that now this house is sturdy. This house is not going to fall apart. This house has structural integrity. It's not going to break. That's what you want to be able to develop within yourself. And one of the most powerful components of that frame in a man is my identity, my sense of self-worth, my sense of value internally, that this is who I know that I am. This is where my value and worth rest within me. And it's that sense of confidence. I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. And I'm able to hold that fast and firm within me. And the other parts of me, my integrity, my sense of my values, my moral compass, you know, the um, the categories of, you know, just let's see, um, even creating a vision for my life and what I have for, well, here's where I'm going in my life. This is my frame. This is what I'm holding together. And so the thing is, if I bring that into the marriage and I have it, this is actually the thing that is very, that confidence that I know who I am and I'm not going to move. I'm not going to break. I'm not going to be shaken and fall apart. Um, That is the thing that's attractive to a woman. And so maintaining that throughout your marriage is a really significant part of being able to do that relationship well. And so that whole idea of maintaining that frame and not like we're saying, not kind of submitting to this, the, how many, what did you call it? Um, a thousand cuts of betatization uh, by gi- like giving concessions. in. Yeah. Concessions. That's what it was where I'm, I concede here and there. 
sure, we can do this or do that. That's part of being in a relationship. You know, today she chooses what, you know, we go to Mexican food. Great. Tomorrow I'm going to say we're going to Italian or whatever. That's kind of how it give and take in a relationship. But I can't, I can't concede myself. I can't let myself, my wants, my desires, my vision, um, my moral compass to be allowed to disintegrate in the relationship. That's where the relationship is lost. Because if I'm lost, the relationship's lost. Sure. Um, I hear that. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Ken. I'm just going to try to summarize what I think would be the um, the argument from this portion of my audience, sure. Okay? Sure. which is, I, I hear you, Ken, and I believe you. So I believe that it might be possible to have a successful marriage. Mm-hmm. And what that means is like creating a very strong foundation and I like solidifying your identity and developing some kind of framework to invite the woman into and learning how to maintain frame and overcome the testing that necessarily occurs Mm -hmm. in courtship Mm -hmm. and throughout the relationship and having some sense of game to keep the passion and interest alive um, and being able to potentially have the resources to provide for a a family and, Mm -hmm. and, 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 and if you do all of those things, then you might be able to have, a successful marriage. Do you, and I think the the argument would be like, how about we just do something that has a higher chance of success that is much easier to accomplish than going through these 10 things that could take decades to develop to minimize the risk of something that may not even work after all, because you're not in control of the situation. Once you get married, you, you, you see a lot of your power. Um, because you yeah and we and ryan you're not even talking about one of the most important parts of this and that is vetting a really good woman exactly because that's another thing it's like a lot of the response that to that is like no if you you just chose the wrong woman well that could be true yeah no one gets married thinking they're going to get divorced except maybe predatory women but (laughs) um yeah it's like yeah learn how to vet a woman learn how to it's all the above you're saying it's like there's so many things and then maybe if things don't go sideways, you might be able to have a happy relationship. It's like, Mm -hmm. how about we just go straight to, I want to be happy with fewer steps. So it's like, why go through all of this trouble just to have a marriage? Do you have a response to that? Well, part of what I'm saying is, um, this is how you would have a great life anyway. Okay, I hear that. I mean, you cannot have a good life if you're a single man without frame. Absolutely. And so it doesn't matter what you choose as your life, having a strong sense of self, a strong uh, differentiated person that doesn't absorb into all these other things is what you want anyway. So that work is work you're going to need to do no matter what anyway. I made a video about this, that hypergamy actually only indirectly benefits women and it directly benefits men, like to become a a stronger, Mm -hmm. more solid higher net worth, more successful man, how does that not benefit the man in question? And it can only indirectly benefit the woman if the man chooses to share if those she, things yep. with her. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm with you on that, which is that these things that make for a successful relationship with a woman more directly and primarily benefit the men involved 
And so maybe, Orion, you know, the whole idea of talking to the guys that maybe they're MGTOW guys and somebody who's just, I'm not going to get married anyway, they know that that's the case. And, I, and I'm fine with that. Make your choices, do what you want to do. Maybe more of what we're doing is we're talking to men who find themselves in a marriage that isn't where they want them to be. It's not as happy. It's not as connected. You know, they're they're maybe on the verge of divorce and that type of thing. And so being able to consider, you know, what changes can I make in my life? And rather than working to say, or having all the energy, I need to save my marriage to be able to say, no, I need to save my soul first. Hmm. I need to become the man that I really want to be. I need to get out of the nice guy syndrome. I need to become more internally referenced and stop being externally referenced, you know, doing the happy wife, happy life thing, which by the way, if you turn that around, it actually works. The whole happy life, happy wife. If a man has a happy life and he has that frame and he's really living well, actually the women are really happy with that. In general, I think people also are about as happy as they choose to be. And there's some yeah, and that just that, choose not to be happy. I'm I'm just saying, though, if you flip it. Oh, yeah, say, I think that was clever. I, I, I it, appreciate that. I think it's true. It's true. But then the whole thing of uh, one thing that Sean has told us is the whole thing of if you're responsible for her happiness, you're also responsible for her unhappiness. And that's a really tough pitfall. But that that's just I'm using that as an illustration that living, just changing the mode, the role that you have in your marriage, that I'm not living to make her happy. I'm not living to submit to her and to make everything work in her life to change and shift what's going on and change and moving into what we were calling selfishness earlier where I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to build my frame. I'm going to build those things I talked about that are frame and see where this goes. Okay. So you, you've mentioned in this conversation that yes, our relationship does require some concessions from time to time. Mm -hmm. Yep. It does require some sacrifices. It can be expensive um, in terms of just resources broadly defined. Yep. Yep. Here you are 39 years into your marriage. Mm -hmm. Like, what have you gotten from marriage that you feel you might not have gotten any other way, even if you had done everything to consolidate your identity, create frame for yourself, pursue your purpose, but you just never entered into that kind of relationship with a woman? What, what does marriage uniquely give you 39 years into that situation? Man, Ryan, I got to tell you, I am one of, I feel incredibly fulfilled in my life. It, it has been, I have had a, an amazing life. I have a family who loves me. I have three adult children. I have two grandsons. One's on the way in, in uh, October. You know, the whole, um, I have a wife that just loves me. I love her. We are great companions. We do a lot of fun things together. We enjoy each other's company. Um, there's just a ton of love going around in my life for, in a number of different ways with my kids with my, um, in my marriage, I just feel incredibly fulfilled. It is, I just feel really, really good in my life. Well, one of the, the things that I have argued that fundamentally marriage is a institution to raise children. And uh -huh, absolutely. And that's really where you went is that, um, when I asked that question, the answer that I heard was like, well, it has allowed me to be surrounded by an ex, you know, multi-generational family 
that is loving and warm and fulfilling. S- supportive. Yes. Everything. Yeah. Would it, would it be possible to have that without getting married or is married in your mind a requisite for that? Well, to be able to raise kids, like I think kids need to be raised, they need mom and dad. So if you're going to have kids, um, um, there are people, my, my daughter's actually, um, to your point, the whole thing of, can I have a group of people around me just loving and caring? My daughter is not married and um, she has created a really significant network of community around her. She's done a great job. She has so many friends and she is um, surrounded by a lot of really lovely, beautiful people. And um, so she's done that. And I think it would be possible to have a a community around you. Um, But as far as family, you know, I don't know might be more Um, difficult to logistically to navigate the co-parenting yeah is that kind of what you're saying definitely with co-parenting for sure i yeah definitely Hmm. um to raise kids i think ultimate is mom and dad together for sure that said i'm a child of divorce who is a child of divorce himself and i often kind of shudder when i hear men say that they're just staying in really unhappy relationships for the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you can speak to that. My, my personal and professional opinion on this is that yes, it's better to have an intact family to raise children. But if that intact family is chaotic, dysfunctional and abusive, it's better for everyone involved to end that. And sometimes divorce can be, a step in the right direction. You know what? In some cases, absolutely, for sure. I, I I'm with you on that. Um, but it, but the whole thing of um, staying together yeah. for the kids. What do you think about that? Staying idea? together for the kids, if it's not abusive and chaotic, like you're saying, if it's something that we're, we kind of have a cold burn or whatever, and you're able to get it done. Um, man, I I just don't know why people don't fight for the marriage, don't fight for the relationship, and mm. just don't don't. Um, you know, and that's part of the whole thing of if I'm just, if I've conceded so much that I just now have no voice and I can't set a boundary and I can't say what I want, or I don't have a vision or I can't lead to where I want it to go, then I'm not in the relationship. Well, this is interesting. So why, why wouldn't somebody fight for the relationship? I'm sure there's many, many reasons for that. But since we know that the vast majority of ma- uh, divorces are initiated by women, maybe one of the reasons why I wouldn't fight for the relationship is that I feel that I might be able to maintain my standard of living and my lifestyle by separating, and I wouldn't have to deal with this person anymore. Maybe I'm also hearing friends or going on social media, and I have this fear of missing out. Maybe I feel like um, this is this is boring. I could get more exciting relationships elsewhere. And um, it's kind of no skin off my back. I can walk away with a a fat paycheck. Maybe maybe that's why some people wouldn't fight for a relationship. I I imagine. Mm. I I don't, I don't know the, the, the direction where we're going with this. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not sure exactly what the question is, Orion. Or how you well, want to, what you, you're really getting at. Well, you said 
just a few minutes ago that you didn't know why people didn't fight for their relationships. Yes. Yes. And I took that as a non-rhetorical question. Uh, and I suggested one reason why some people might not fight for their relationships. Okay. Do you have any other reasons why someone wouldn't fight for their relationships? Well, just the one that I gave that they've conceded so much that they no longer have a voice or think that they do have a voice. And I think that to me, that's what most, a lot of the guys that I, that I work with, that's kind of where they're at. And so then my work is how do you, when I talk about empowering men, one of the significant things is giving a man a voice, you know, and it starts with what do you want? And then how do you communicate what you want um, with your partner and, and to be able to, to have that as now this is on the front burner. I'm saying what I want. And then she can say what she wants as well. But now actually we're starting to say something. We're starting to start the conversation. But if you're sitting back in the whole thing, like you said earlier, with the covert contract, I am seeking what I want, but I'm only doing it covertly with a kind of a passive way of trying to get what I want without communicating it. That's not going to get you anywhere. And that's what most guys do. But starting to say, this is what I want. You know, this is how I want to be treated. This is where I want the relationship to go. Most guys don't even get to that spot where they're actually talking about. It. I don't think women do either. Women just live by these expectations. If I feel, you know, whatever, you know, the whole thing that, you know, the line that women have the, the, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. So we're going to get a divorce. It's like, yeah, that's all about expectation. And the, the way to be able to define that statement, you know, I oxytocin you, but I don't dopamine you, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, I'm bonded to you. I love you, but I don't have this thrill anymore. And, and it's, and it's like, what is the expectation that you have this thrill your entire marriage all the time? And that's what some TV shows and everything portray. It's kind of the mythology of relationship. And it's like, and that, if that's what you're seeking, it's going to fall apart. Mm. That's a tough sell, especially I think for young people who want to do the FOMO and go out and have all of the experiences and the feelings, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of more temperate companionate love is, I don't think very interesting for 20 somethings. Mm -mm. No. Cause you know what, when it really comes down to it, it's kind of boring. True, true love is boring. Is that weird to say that? Hmm. It's peaceful. It's content. It doesn't, it, every once in a while you get the dopamine hit, but it's not constant. It's a, it's kind of, it's more relaxed. It's yeah. Yeah. Alexander said more or less the same thing. And I do think that that is a sign of a healthy successful relationship is some degree of peacefulness and harmony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's a tough one because it, it does feel like you have to put a, a part of yourself to bed. Actually, I'm not sure. Yes, maybe you do, but in, um, but I think what you're doing is you're maybe part of you is going to bed and it might be that more immature part of you. And a more mature part of you, actually, you find that the peace and content and, and harmony actually is way more valuable than hmm. feeling the dopamine hit every once in a while or all well, constantly. You might be right. I mean, we're in an interesting social moment. As you know, the average age of first marriage continues to creep up and up and up. Right now, it's around 30 in the United States. 
And I think a generation ago, it was probably like 25 and maybe two generations ago, it was closer to 22. Teens, yeah. Right. So, um, and there is this trope of like midlife crises. And I've thought about this phenomenon. And I think that is a result of, let's say, taking on premature maturity and potentially entering into a uh, this type of relationship or social obligation too soon without any kind of you know sowing of the wild oats or development of the sense of self and so the person gets to be middle-aged has the first brush of mortality realizes he's never lived for himself his entire life and you know stereotypically has an affair with the secretary and buys a sports car or something like that mm-hmm now we kind of have the the opposite problem, which is people are spending their entire 20s and sometimes their entire 30s mm-hmm. looking for themselves. Um, potentially, that means that when they're finally ready to settle down, they might actually be able to do so for the long term. But it comes with other problems because of the mate selection process uh, and the reproductive windows as well. But that's, that's an interesting idea. Do you feel like people kind of need to get that out of this, their system uh, before they can really settle down in the way that you described? That's a great question. Um, I don't think it's necessary. It all, the, the thing is, it, it becomes a high value. You, you said FOMO, you know, am I missing out? Yeah. Um, what is it that I really value? Do I value going off and doing all these things that I can do as a single person? Or do I really value, I want to build a family and I want to, I want to build a legacy and I want to build something or the other category that I didn't bring up, you know, we were talking about how marriage or relationship marriage in particular builds is, is designed for building a family, mm-hmm. raising kids. Right. Um, the other thing, the other two things that I think it, it it's designed for is it's going to grow us up toward maturity. You cannot do a relationship without becoming more mature. It's going to force you to learn something about yourself and to become a more mature individual. And then the third thing is all about well-being. The relationship creates more well-being. It creates more support, connectedness, um, uh, security, things like that. That's what a relationship, those, that's what relationship does. But the whole idea of the, the building you up to become more mature is something that people don't understand that they enter into a relationship because nobody tells us this, that it's designed to grow you up toward maturity. And so I think that's where everybody in a relationship, whether you're kicking and screaming or whether you actually engage in the process, you're going to grow up, you're going to, and that's going to happen. And so, but the whole, what we're talking about is, is a single person, if they go all the way to 35 and then they realize, you know what, it's time they haven't, they've experienced a lot, but they really haven't grown up Mm. and, and, and relationship grows you up big time. And it's, and it is something, gosh, I don't know what, uh, what answer I'm giving you. I don't know what question I'm answering. I think you answered Um, the question. What I heard is that um, it's not you don't believe that it's necessary to kind of sow your wild oats before I don't. you commit to that. Um, no, because it was back to the whole idea of values. Do I value sowing your wild oats? I'm going, if if I value going and have sex with multiple people, is that a value? Is Do I value going partying until the sun comes up? Is that a value? Is Do I value, you know, traveling all over the world? Maybe that's a value, seeing new sure. things and meeting new people. Um or like I said, do I value raising a family? 
As a contrary position, I'm reminded of uh, a line from the Data Ching that I really like, which is to, to make something contract, you must first allow it to expand. And that has been true in my own life, that it's much mm. easier for me to let go of certain things and to grow when I feel like I've exhausted them. Hmm. That's just me personally. Um, and I've, I think that might be true for some other people as well, uh, that if they don't do the thing that they really want to the extent that they want to do it, mm -hmm. they might have a regret and it might inappropriately cloud their present moment because they're, they're thinking about the life that they weren't quite ready to give up, but did for some other reason. Yeah. Orion, could we could we come to this conclusion that like you and I have two totally different trajectories in our lives, right? I got married when I was twenty three. Um, had just had my thirty ninth anniversary. I have grandkids. You know, it's like, um, and your your life's moving in a different direction. So you're kind of giving the what do you call it? Um, uh, you're saying you're kind of given. Here's what I think that the benefit of that um, lifestyle would have been or is. And, and I want to be able to just respect both and to be able to go, both of those trajectories are just fine. What somebody chooses for their life. Um, th does that make sense? Oh yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, certainly one of the things that I, uh, that, that might be difficult about the institution of marriage is that it is kind of a one size fits all thing. I read a, a book recently about, I think, uh, it was a it was a West African society that had like 13 different legal and social forms of marriage. Hmm. And I thought that was a fascinating idea that we can have different arrangements to accommodate the different needs of the pop of the community, yeah, as opposed yeah. to this is the way it has to be for everybody. And it and it either works or it fails often spectacularly and it's failing a lot, even at 44%. So um, I think that it's different strokes for different folks and that we should potentially consider keeping a more open mind about the nature and structure of relationships. I, th I, I made an episode about this a while back. I think it's one thing that straights can learn from gays and that population who have never really had traditional models of the way that their relationships are supposed to look like and so they're more or less forced to um, communicate exhaustively about the nature and structure of the relationship and ideally to custom tailor it to the individuals in question. Um, and that it's really nobody else's business what they do besides their own. Yeah. Versus so, okay. Yes. And I think the way marriages no, or straight relationships are like, this is how they are. It is. This is how it is. This is, and that's what I'm saying. This is the expectation of it. This is how it starts. This is how you do it. You know, all the the projection of dating and engagement and marriage. You have a wedding, and your wedding goes like this, and then you live happily ever after. All the expectation, and it's the uh, so much. It's how it's uh, how it's marketed. And you think about how the diamond industry has marketed it. You know, oh, you have the diamond, and you're going to be somebody, and here's where it goes, and and all this, and then you get you get have the wedding, and you're the princess, and all this stuff happens, and it's all it's all the same stuff with this expectation of this is what the marriage is going to provide and that's the the whole thing of the mythology i think mythology of the marriage where this is not what it's going to provide 
And and I think you've said this in your in your um in some of your podcasts, the whole thing of how marriage has transitioned. I mean, a hundred years ago, it was predominantly for survival. It was still about survival. It's about you connect with a person, you have a family, and it's about this is how we survive. This is how we make things happen. And um because you couldn't do it alone. I mean, it was just you couldn't do it alone. Mm -hmm. You you couldn't. And and so it's the and so now in in a hundred years is not very long. And it's not even been that. It's probably more like 50 years that it's really shifted from that. Because you think about coming out of the Korean War, the Depression, the World War II, Korean War, it was all life was still really rough. And and so just in within 50 years, here we we find ourselves in this abundant place where, you know life is really good. And so we can afford to feel like I want to have this in the relationship. Or we but, don't need the other person as much. I think that no. across time and across culture, it's like average number of children or birth rates are pretty strongly correlated to like GDP and average annual mm-hmm. incomes. And the better, the more prosperous the society, the lower the birth rate, like period. Yeah. You still see cultures today that are having you know, on average, certainly more than two children, mm-hmm. but their economies aren't nearly as good. So that's, that's so, interesting. Maybe we come together more out of necessity than we would like to admit. But it's to your point of the thinking about how would you have other categories of a relationship, of sure. a marriage, you know, because it's not made for survival anymore. And some marriages aren't about raising children. And some, you know, and I just, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of got my head spinning and what would that mean and everything. But I, I think what it would look like, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. But just thinking about um, at least being able to have it to where people understand this is what marriage is. And because um, I, I don't think people go into it knowing what it really is. Ah, So that you're right. They just to use your language, they just understand the mythology, what it's supposed to be or what they think it's going to be because all they see is the weddings and the bridal gowns and the diamond rings and the proposals and the gender reveals and all that stuff. But we don't really have good access to the everyday workings of even any relationship, any marriage, Mm -hmm. let alone a successful marriage. And so people don't often know what they're getting into. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason why Mm -hmm. there's such a high divorce rate. Mm-hmm. And I think why women are the ones that are initiating, because they're the ones that have been taught that this is what the marriage is. Mm-hmm. And now they're in the marriage and the honeymoon's over and we have kids and all of a sudden it's not as peachy as it was once once was. Mm-hmm. And it's not what they've told me it was going to be because it's a lot harder than I imagined. And and so then all of a sudden I'm not happy. And so therefore I'm going to go ahead and file or whatever. That makes sense. You know. And, and so, um, is there a way to solve that problem? Uh, okay. <laughs> I wish, I there wish there was be. a way. I mean, there has to be something that can be done. Uh, hmm. I, I don't know if you can like legislate this, but maybe one possible solution is, uh, is spending more time with your with like the older generation, maybe people who have been married for at least 10 years, if not longer, um, to kind of get a, a more accurate understanding of what's in store to actually have relationships beyond your age or generational cohort mm-hmm. who can 
kind of tell you this is what you might be in for. This is what you might have to look forward to. No, it's not what you might have to. This is what you're going to. The honeymoon will be over. Because there there has been a decline in um, in certainly the extended family. And I think connected to that is intergenerational friendships, is that most people's friends are within like a couple of years of them. And that's what they know. I think it's actually really useful to have friends who are in an older generation. Oh, absolutely. Younger men. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's a whole nother conversation, Orion. Sure. Yeah, we've already <laughs> talked for a while, so maybe we can do that another time. So um, if people want to know more about you, Ken, how could they get in touch with you? Sure. So um, my website is solidman.com. And so um, so Ken at solidman.com would be my email. And then uh, and there's other ways to link into uh, on the email on the website as well. Uh, and you can just see a little bit what I'm all about. You can uh, purchase my books online on Amazon. Just go to Ken Curry LMFT. And uh, there, I've got four books on there, um, which was my curriculum for my men's groups just turned into books. So if you want to work through that, um, that's definitely an option there. And I do have men's groups um, that uh that I that I have that are online, so um, that would be an option if any of you guys are looking for men's groups. Uh, I I know that there are men out there who are, so I I don't know if you have a lot of space in your men's groups currently. Mm. So let's manage expectations. Do you have a wait list? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I um I have three groups and two groups are full, and so there's wait lists for those and. And it uh, it takes a bit for an opening to come up, but if you want to be on the wait list, you can. The one group that's open is Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m. to 8 a.m. Um, that's mountain time. And so it's pretty early if you're on the West Coast. But there's definitely space in the morning group. So, yeah. Right on. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Ken. I think that you brought a a, a new perspective to relationships and marriage in particular. It's one of the more reasonable critiques against my channel is that uh, as an unmarried guy, what what do I have Uh, to be speaking about marriage in mm -hmm. particular? So uh, I think it was a valuable perspective, Ken. So thanks again for coming on the show. You're welcome. It was was fun. Thanks, Ryan. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye.